0: Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. The Trial, The Blind Brother, Episode 4 Tom turned his head away and covered his face with his hands. This was cruel. For the first time in his life he was glad benny could not see him but he felt that it was necessary for him to say something so he stammered out well i was only just supposing you know Of course no honest fella did do that but if they'll only get to work again we won't ask anybody for any hundred dollars we'll earn it the beauty of the autumn day died slowly out and the narrow crescent of the new moon Hanging over the tops of the far western hills, shone dimly through the purple haze. Sadly, and with few words, the two boys went their homeward way. A great burden of regret and remorse rested upon Tom's heart, and the shadow of it fell upon the heart of his blind brother. Poor, poor Tom! He knew not what to do. He could never use the money now for Benny, and he would not use it for himself. It had occurred to him once to take the money back to plead well, and seek to be released from his agreement, but a little thought had convinced him that this would be useless, that the money would not be received, that having accepted a bribe, he had placed himself in the power of those who had given it to him, and that any wavering on his part, much more any violation of his agreement, would bring down vengeance and punishment on himself, and trouble and disgrace on those who were dear to him. Oh, why, he asked himself in bitter thought, why did I ever take the money? Tom's mother attributed his melancholy to lack of work and loss of earnings. She knew how his heart was set on laying up money to send Benny away, and how impatient he became at any delay in the progress of his scheme. So she talked to him very cheerfully, and made delicate little dishes to tempt his appetite. And when the morning of the trial came, and Tom started for the train to go to wilkes Dressed in his best clothes, and with the hated hundred dollars burning in his pocket, she kissed him good-bye with a smile on her face. She bade him many times to be very careful about the cars, and said to him at parting, Whatever the says to thee, lad, tell the truth. Whatever the does to thee, tell the truth. Fear to look no man in the eye. Be good and honest with yourself, and come back to Mummy and Benny when it's o'er. hearty and well. Sandy McCullochton went down with Tom on the train, and together they walked from the station to the courthouse. There were many people standing about in the courthouse square and in the corridors of the building, and the courtroom itself was nearly full when Tom and Sandy entered it. They found vacant places on one of the rear benches, but as the seats were all graded down on a sloping floor to the bar, they could see without difficulty all that was being done. Tom had never been in a courtroom before, and he looked with much interest at the judges on the bench, at the lawyers chatting pleasantly in the bar, at the entry and departure of the grand jury, and at the officious constables, each with his staff of office, who kept order in the courtroom there were some motions and arguments which tom could not understand being made by the attorneys the clerk read some lists in a weak voice and the time of the court was thus occupied until toward noon By and by there was a slight bustle at the side door, to the right of the judge's bench, and the sheriff and his deputy entered with Jack Rennie, head and shoulders above those who accompanied him, his heavily bearded face somewhat pale from confinement, and stooping rather more than usual, he moved slowly across the crowded bar, in full view of all the people in the room, to a seat by the side of his counsel. The instant Tom's eyes rested on him, he recognized him as the man who had threatened him at the breaker on the night of the fair. The buzz of excitement occasioned by the entrance of the prisoner subsided, and the voice of the presiding judge sounded distinctly through the room. Commonwealth against Jack Rennie, arson, are you ready for trial? We are, your honor, replied the district attorney, rising to his feet and advancing to the clerk's desk. Very well, said the judge, arraign the prisoner. Rennie was directed to stand up, and the district attorney read in a clear voice the indictment which charged that the defendant did, on the 18th day of November, last past, feloniously, willfully, and maliciously set fire to burn and consume a certain building, to wit, a coal-breaker, the same being the property of a certain body corporate known by the style and title of the valley coal company, by reason of which, setting fire to, burning, and consuming a certain dwelling house, also the property of the said valley coal company, and being within the tutelage of said coal breaker, was also burned and consumed, contrary to the form of the act of the General Assembly. In such case made, and provided, and against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Rennie stood listening intently to the reading of the indictment. When the question was put, what you say you, guilty or not guilty, he replied in a deep chest voice, if I be guilty, you ha' but to prove it. Make your plea, sir, said the judge severely, guilty or not guilty. Then I'll plead no guilty. No man's guilty till he's proved guilty. Rennie resumed his seat, and the court was soon afterward adjourned for the noon recess. In the afternoon, the selecting of jurors in the case against Ranny began. The first one, called was a minor. One could tell that by the blue powder marks on his face, and that he was of Irish nativity could be detected by the rich rock that escaped his lips. He was passed by the commonwealth, and the clerk of the court recited the formula. Juror, look upon the prisoner. Prisoner, look upon the juror. What say you, challenge or no challenge? Swear the juror to true answers, make, said attorney pleadwell. The man was sworn. Where do you live, inquired the lawyer. Up on Shanty Hill, sir? That's definite. Anywhere near this breaker that was burned? Oh, the matter of a mile be like, bearing the time it I take ye to walk to the track beyond. What's your occupation? Occupation it is? Yes, sir, as good a character as any. Oh, I mean, what do you work at? I'm a miner, sir. Where do you work? Faith, I worked for the Valley Breaker Coal Company this ten years come next St. Patrick's Day. May it place the court in bad cess to the man that burnt it, I say, and Challenge? Interrupted attorney Pleadwell sharply. A tipped staff hurried the challenged to man from the witness box in a state of helpless bewilderment as to what it all meant. And another juror was called—a small, wary man chewing on a mouthful of tobacco. He was sworn on his war dire, and, and the district attorney asked him, "Do you belong to an organization known as the Molly Marquise?" "No, sir," quickly responded the man before Pleadwell could interpose an objection to the question. The district attorney looked at the witness sharply for a moment, then consulted with attorney Summons, who sat by his side as private counsel for the prosecution. They believed that the man had sworn falsely in order to get on the jury in behalf of the defendant, and he was directed to stand aside the next juror called was a farmer from a remote part of the country who had heard nothing about the fire until he arrived in town and who displayed no prejudices he was accepted by both sides as the first juror in the case so the selection went on slowly and tediously enlivened at times by an amusing candidate for the jury box or a tilt between counsel and long before the twelve good men and true had all been selected and sworn. The early autumn night had fallen, and the flaring gas jets lighted up the space about the bench and bar, leaving the remote corners of the courtroom in uncertain shadow. At six o'clock, court was adjourned until the following morning, and Tom went with Sandy McCulloch to a small hotel on the outskirts of the city, where arrangements had been made to accommodate witnesses for the defense. Notwithstanding his anxiety of mind, Tom was hungry and he ate a hearty supper and went early to bed, but he could not sleep. The excitement of the day had left his brain in a whirl, and he tossed restlessly about, going over in his mind what had already occurred, and thinking with grave apprehension of what tomorrow might bring forth. Through it all he still repeated one resolve that whatever came he would not lie. With this unsatisfactory compromise, with his conscience on his mind, he fell at last into a troubled sleep. When court was opened on the following morning, the courtroom was more densely crowded with idle men than it had been on the previous day. The case against Rennie was taken up without delay. The district attorney made the opening address on behalf of the Commonwealth, doing little more than to outline the evidence to be presented by the prosecution. The first witness called was a civil engineer, who presented a map showing the plan, location, and surroundings of the burned breaker. Following him came two witnesses who detailed the progress of the fire as they had seen it, one of them being the watchman at the breaker, and the other the occupant of the dwelling-house which had been burned. A third witness testified to having seen Rennie at the fire shortly after it broke out, but did not know how long he had been there, nor where he came from, and still another swore that he had seen the defendant in a drinking saloon in town about half an hour before he heard the alarm of fire, and had noticed that he went away in the direction of the breaker, in company with Salent Mike. Then came a witness who gave his name as Louis G. Travers, a slightly built but muscular man, of middle age, with sharp eyes and quiet manner. What is your occupation? inquired the district attorney after the man had been sworn. I am a detective. Do you know Jack Rennie, the defendant? I do. Where did you last see him? At a meeting in Carbondale of certain members of the Order of Molly Marquise. Are you a member of that Order? I have been. Will you relate the circumstances attending your connection with it? The stillness in the courtroom was marvelous. On many an expectant face were mingled expressions of hate and fear, as the witness, with calm deliberation, related the thrilling story of how he had worked as a common laborer in the mines in order to gain his standing with the lawless miners, and of how he had been admitted to the order of Molly Marquise, and and had taken part in their deliberations. As a member of the executive board, he had been present, he said, at a secret meeting held in Carbondale at which, on account of the outspoken denunciation of the order and the prompt dismissal of men belonging to it by the owners of the Valley Breaker, it was resolved to visit them with vengeance in the shape of fire that Jack Rennie was selected to carry out the resolution, and that Rennie, being present, had registered a solemn oath to do the bidding of the order. This was the substance of his testimony, and though the cross-examination by Leadwell was sharp, rigid, and severe, the effect of the evidence could not be broken. At this point the commonwealth rested. The case against Rennie had assumed a serious phase. Unless he could produce some strong evidence in his favor, his conviction was almost assured. Pleadwell rose to open the case for the defense. After some general remarks on the unfairness of the prosecution and the weakness of the detective's story, he declared that they should prove in behalf of the defendant that he was not at or near the breaker until after the fire was well under way, and that the saving of a large portion of the company's loose property from destruction was due to his brave and energetic efforts. Furthermore, he continued Pleadwell earnestly, we shall present to the court and jury a most irreproachable witness Who will testify to you that he was present and saw this fire kindled, and that the man who kindled it was not Jack Rennie? There was a buzz of excitement in the courtroom as Pleadwell resumed his seat, and Tom's heart beat loudly as he understood the significance of the lawyer's last statement. He felt more than ever the wrong, the disgrace, the self-humiliation to which he should stoop by giving his testimony in support of so monstrous a lie. But what could he do? The strain on his mind was terrible. He felt an almost irresistible desire to cry out there in the crowded courtroom that he had yielded to temptation for the sake of blind Benny, that he had seen the folly and the wickedness and known the awful misery of it already, that the money that bought him was like rags in his sight, and that his own guilt and cowardice should save the criminal no longer from the punishment which his crime deserved. By strong effort he repressed his emotion and sat with face flushed and pallid by turns, waiting for the time when his wretched bargain should be fulfilled. The first witness called on the part of the defense was Michael Carillon, better known as Silent Mike. He testified that Rennie came down from Scranton with him and a body of strikers on the morning of November 18, that they ate supper with Carolon's married sister, who lived in the village just beyond the burn breaker. That they spent the evening at a miner's mass meeting in town, and afterwards called at a drinking saloon, and that they were on the way back to his sister's house for the night when they heard the cry of fire. This time, continued Caroline, Jack and me were together at the crossing on Railroad Street, maybe a quarter of a mile away from the breaker, and when we heard the alarm, we looked up the track and saw the blaze. And Jack says, "Says, he." The breaker's a fire, and I says, says I, it is sure. And with that, we both ran up the track toward the fire. When we were most there, we met Sandy McCullough, come look, coming from the hill beyond. And me and him and Jack went and shoved out the cars from the loading place that we could get. And, and then we went to help with the furniture at the dwelling house, and we saved everything we could. Sal and Mike had done well. Few people had ever before heard so many words come in succession from his lips, and he told his story with such impressive earnestness that it was easy to believe that he spoke the truth. Indeed, there was very little in his account of the occurrence that was not strictly in accordance with the facts. He had simply omitted to state that he and Ranny had gone first up to the breaker and kindled the blaze. And then returned hastily to the crossing where they certainly were when the first cry of fire was heard. Rennie's case was looking up. There was a res- recess for dinner, and when court was reopened, Sandy McClock was put on the witness stand. He was just getting to into bed, he said, when he heard the cry of fire. He looked out and saw that the breaker was burning, and hurrying on the- his clothes, he ran down the hill. When I came to the fit of the hill, he continued in answer to Pleadwell's question, I heard some uh, what at behind me and I looking around and there I see Jack the Giant and Silent Micah speeding up the track toward the breaker. The fire was a burning up brisk by then and me and Jack and Mac we went and pushed some cars out from the loading place down the track and then we saved it a bit from the dwelling house and a bit from the engine room and a bit here and there as we could and Jack he worked it like a he did sir sure he did "'What were you doing up so late at night?' was the first question put to Sandy on cross-examination. "'Well, you see, sir, a bit, O oh, lad, that works uh, in the mines with us. Had, "'He had lost his brother in the slope the day he had, "'and I get him a promise to help seek him oot. "'Gin he came in the evening to say, as the lad was no found, "'and I was a-waiting up for him, men ye. "'Well, did the lad come inquire lawyer summons somewhat sarcastically?' He did that, and he tellin' it me as how he's found found the brother and leadin' him home and wouldn't I want me, and I said good night till the lad and started to bed, and the clock struck at eleven. Who was the lad that came to your house, Tom Taylor, sir? Granny started in his seat as the name was spoken, and the blood mounted into his pale forehead as he gazed intently at the witness. Did the boy go in the direction of the breaker from your house? questioned summons. He did, sir. How long was it after he left you that you heard the cry of fire? Well, maybe the time, oh, ten minutes. Could the boy have got beyond the breaker? He musta, sir, he musta. The grass was not growing under his feet going down the hill. Do you think Tom Taylor fared that breaker? Sandy stared for a moment in blank amazement. Why, bless you, man. "'Be ye daft! There ain't a better boy in the round world than Tom Taylor!' And Sandy broke into hearty laugh at the very idea of Tom doing anything wrong. But Tom, who sat back in his seat and heard it all, was suddenly startled with a sense of a new danger. Suppose he should be charged with setting fair to the breaker, and suppose Rennie and Caroline should go up on the witness stand and swear that they saw him running away from the newly kindled blazes. Indeed, they might, and not lie either." How could he prove his innocence, yet he was about to swear Jack Rennie into freedom, knowing him to be guilty of the crime with which he was charged, and what was still more despicable, he was about to do it for money. Looked up uh, on in this light, the thing that Tom had promised to do rose very black and ugly in his eyes, and the poor delusion that he should tell no lie was swept like a clinging cobweb from his mind. It was while his heart was still throbbing valiantly under the excitement of this last thought and fear that he heard someone call, Thomas Taylor. Here, sir, responded Tom. Take the witness stand. Thank you for listening to another episode of Soft Story Classic.